So we're in a series called Inspired, and it's based off of a book by uh, Dr. Larry Crabb called The 66 Love Letters. Um, if you haven't gotten that, man, it's just a great resource to help you in your journey and help you in your walk as you're continuing to grow in your relationship with Christ, or even if you're just here trying to figure out who God even is and if he even exists, that book will help you in your journey into figuring out who God really is. So Nick did a great job last week um, laying out uh, the book of Psalms, giving us some great perspective and some insight on that, and uh, man, just phenomenal job uh, of, of teaching through that. This week, we're going to kind of get into Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. We'll do just an overview of those books, and uh, it's going to be more about the life of Solomon who wrote those three books and the wisdom that we can gain by looking at his life as well. Scripture is a, a story of God's forgiveness and redemption. It's a story of how God desires to have <clears throat> just a relationship with us and how we can have a relationship with him. Having communion with God, having the ability to be able to have that real genuine heart-to-heart relationship with him. Not just some cosmic being out there, not a cosmic Santa Claus, not any of that, but a real genuine God who cares about us and desires to have a relationship and communion with us. The Bible is a love story that begins with a divorce. Everything from the third chapter of Genesis through the end of Revelation is a story of a betrayed lover who is doing everything he can to woo us back to himself so that we can experience life together. That's what he desires, that we would experience the love of family forever through the relationship we can have with him. Proverbs, along with all the scriptures, have to be viewed with a reverent respect. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 1-7. It lays it out and says that uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but uh, fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's not the kind of fear that you're afraid of something or it's not the kind of fear like our six-year-old experienced yesterday morning when the thunderstorm came through and he jumped up about 6.30, came bolting into our bedroom and jumped in the bed right between my wife and I and, and, and he, he rolled over on his back and he said, I thought I was dreaming. And then I woke up and I realized that I was not dreaming because it lightning right here and it was loud thunder. And daddy, I got scared. And we were like, come on in, cuddle up, buddy. It's not that kind of fear. It could be that kind of awe and respect of the power of God. But that word, the fear of the Lord, is a, literally a reverent respect for him. A reverent respect for knowing who God is. God's not up there looking to, 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 to push you down all the time. Looking to, to, to do anything and everything he can to catch you in wrong. He's not, that's not what God is doing. That's not the relational God that we have. It's a reverent respect. It's an awe of God. Have you ever been in awe of God? Have you ever had that time in your life or experienced different times in your life? Shared some of this in the first service. I had so many people came up afterwards and said, and there was this time in my life where I was in awe of God when I saw God do these things. Do you look at creation and recognize how big that he is and how truly small we really are? Do you see that? Do you see the awe of God? Stand in awe of it. When I graduated from college, my parents gave me a gift of going to Colorado for a few weeks with one of my uncles. Um, he was an adventurer, um, did a lot of climbing, uh, kayaking, um, hiking, uh, camping. We camped almost every day uh, that we were there. We would hike up into the mountains and do a lot of things in some of the, the wilderness and just experiencing just the beauty of God's creation. So we had driven to a place outside of Leadville, Colorado called uh, Mount Elbert. Mount Elbert is the second highest peak in the continental United States, 14,440 feet. And we had hiked up into the area of Mount Elbert uh, to a place where we were going to camp. And I remember we set out the, the, the um, sleeping bags and, and the tarp, and, and we laid down at night. And I remember the expanse of the sky, just how amazing that it was. Not a light anywhere in sight except for the stars that were glowing. The universe just glowing out in front of us, and it just coming alive. And I remember just lying there, just being in awe of God, the beauty of his creation. The next morning, we got up about 4 a.m. and began to, to our, our ascent to the, to the peak. So we began to hike, and as we, were, as we were climbing up and going, I remember, you know, just going with a headlamp to begin with, 
And all of a sudden, it starts to break daylight. And I remember we stopped and we watched the sun come up over the Rocky Mountains. And as the sun came up, I remember just seeing the beauty of creation come alive. You start hearing the birds starting to chirp. You start hearing the animals, the different sounds and the noises. And I remember just sitting there in awe of God, watching the beauty of his creation as the sun began to peak over the Rocky Mountains and just watching it as it, as it, as it crept up in the sky just watching and being in awe of God. We hiked further, and I, I remember just seeing these huge boulder fields and looking at the creation and the, the way, I mean, you look at it, and you're like, how in the world are all this? I mean, and it's all by the creation of his hand, what God designed. And, and I remember just looking at these huge boulder fields and, and just being amazed at the awe of God. We go up even further, and as we get about, about 11 or 12,000 feet, the air gets a little bit thinner. Your head starts to hurt a little bit. And I remember just sitting down. We rest, and, and as we we're sitting there, we, we look over this meadow that's in the valley between two peaks. And as we're looking over, there's this huge herd of elk that walks out and begins to graze. And I remember looking at them about five or 600 yards away, just watching these elk, this huge herd of elk that are grazing. And I, I remember just being in awe of God, just watching the beauty of his creation. We had been watching them for about 20 or 25 minutes, and all of a sudden, you saw one of them throw its head up and look into the, the woods behind it, the herd. And, and I don't know if it was a bear or it was somebody else coming. I don't know what it was, but something spooked them, and it alerted them to th th that there's danger, to flee from the danger. And all of a sudden, that huge herd of elk just exploded and erupted through the trees, went down through this valley, and came up on the next hill on the other side. And I remember just sitting there, just watching it, just in amazement. And the awe of God and the beauty of his creation, how he would design it to know the fear of the enemy, the fear of their enemy, the fear of something that could harm them and how they would flee from it. And I remember we, we finally got up to the snow caps area and, and as we got up further and further, it's in June and, and, and there's snow everywhere. And I remember just being in awe of God because, man, wow, the beauty of this creation as we walked up, we walked up on the eastern side, and from the west, there was a huge wind that was coming. The wind was swirling that day, but we didn't feel it until we got to the peak. As we got to the top of the peak, we were hit with this 45 or 50 mile an hour wind, just a steady wind at the top of the peak at 14,000 feet, and, and as it, it just hit us, we had to take out and put some windbreakers on because it was, it was chilly. And so I remember just standing there in the rushing and roaring wind. You step down five feet and it's peaceful and, and almost calm. And you step up over this peak and you're just hit with this rushing wind. And I remember being in awe of God as we sat there. There was a, a, a time capsule on the, the top of Mount Elbert that people would unscrew and you would write a note and put it in there and then screw it back on. And I remember sitting there writing out Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. God, I am in awe of you. I remember writing that, putting it in that capsule and screwing the cap back on, just sitting there and watching, looking out over all the glorious and the beauty of the creation, being in awe of God. When's the last time that you were in awe of God? Think about a time where he moved you to speak, or, or maybe you've been silenced because of God. Where he's uh, moved you to take a stand or to fall to your knees in awe of God. Think about a time where you've ever been moved to uncontrollable laughter. Or maybe sobbing because of the awe of God. Think about a time in your life, have you ever been there, have you experienced that awe of God? You see a picture of that in Solomon's life. Solomon in, in 1 Kings 8, we went through it a few weeks back, but Solomon in 1 Kings 8 begins to lay out this awe of God that he experienced as he dedicated the temple. As God came down in the presence of the, of the cloud and, and, and the awe of God that Solomon writes about just for so long. It's, it's actually 66 verses long. It's the longest by far book. It's the longest by far chapter in all of Kings. Because I guess when they decided to chapter and verse the scripture out, they couldn't stop because he was just so in awe of God. They said, we can't stop this yet because here it is. He's laying out how God has kept his promises. He fulfilled the things that he said. He's done all the stuff. And Solomon's in awe of God. Where did it come from? 
It started out a few chapters earlier in 1 Kings 3 and 4 when Solomon was leading the, the, the nation and all of a sudden he realizes, man, I cannot do this on my own, but one thing I will do, I will honor you, God, with everything that I can. I'll honor you. God being pleased with Solomon said, what can I do for you to help you in this? Solomon could ask for anything, but he asked for wisdom. If you'll grant me wisdom to lead this people, if you'll grant me wisdom to lead this nation, he didn't ask for money, he didn't ask for power, he didn't ask for the authority, he didn't ask for any of those things. He just asked for wisdom and leading, and that's what God granted him. God granted him wisdom as he led, and the nation was blessed incredibly by it. Solomon uh, is, is known as the father of wisdom movement in Israel. You know, he didn't write all of Proverbs, but it's a book that is con- just full of wisdom. So much wisdom that there is out there. Wisdom is not knowledge, but rather it's an applied skill or an applied knowledge. I put something out on Facebook this week. A lot of you guys commented on I thank you guys for the insight that you offered, most of you. Um, however, there are some of you that we will have conversation later. Um, Pastor Tim, one of them, I'll bring that up in a little bit. Um, but there are things that, uh, you know, you can see. And, and as I put that out there, just wanting to hear what people see and what they think between the difference of knowledge and wisdom. It went something like this. Knowledge is blank. Wisdom is blank. Had some great answers. My definition of wisdom is this. Wisdom is the insight to make decisions based on the outcome that is desired. Just in my own words, wisdom is the insight to make decisions based on the outcome that is desired. As you go through life situations, you learn about different things. There's examples between knowledge and wisdom. Some of the examples that I I received and some of the ones that I came up with, knowledge is the ability to answer questions. Wisdom is the ability to ask questions. A friend of mine, Nick, uh, he, he laid out and said, knowledge is the ability to accumulate information. Wisdom is knowing how to use it. Another one, knowledge can tell you the ingredients. Will you, uh, wisdom can tell you the recipe in your life. Where are you at with knowledge and wisdom? Greg Chupp, he, he sent this one in and said, knowledge is knowing that burritos on a road trip are a bad idea. Wisdom is keeping your car mates from grabbing a couple of them at the gas station. So they traveled to Myrtle Beach yesterday, and I, I sent him a message this morning. And I said, I hope that your car ride was filled with a family that ate a lot of burritos. So... He said that uh, they didn't get burritos, they had Cracker Barrel, and the eggs had the same effect. So that's just one of those things. The mic had a bump during the first service and made a weird sound while I was speaking, and everybody kind of jumped, and I stopped, and um, I kind of came up with this one on the spot. Um, Knowledge is knowing that eggs are good. Wisdom tells you don't be eating them before you come up here and speak, I guess, because uh, you never know where the mic may be pointed. So from there, uh, my mom... Uh, Thank you, Mom. Mom uh, said this, knowledge is what you learn in raising three kids. Wisdom is wondering if you would do it all over again. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Knowledge is seeing the corruption in this world. Wisdom is seeing the corruption in yourself. So knowledge is, is the ability to look both ways before you cross the street. But wisdom tells you to look both ways. Knowledge is, uh, is knowing it's a one-way street, but wisdom says look both ways anyway, no matter what. So I had a little pearl of wisdom that I, I gained on one of my trips in Israel a few, um, a few years back. Uh, we had gone over, and um, as we were preparing to go, there's some training you go through. And one of the trainings that they says you've got, they sent us this, you've got to watch this video. It, it will teach you how to cross the street. And we're all looking at it like, man, I've been like 30-something countries around the world. I know how to cross the stinking street. And he, the, the guy sent me a message back. And he's like, no, it's a requirement. You have to watch these couple of videos. And I'm like, we got to watch a video to cross the street? Yes, you do. Let me say, crosswalks don't exist. Um, pedestrian does not have the right-of-way. Uh, tonnage wins. And uh, they have very few stop signs or red lights. It is chaos. So here's how you cross the street in Egypt. They tell you, you walk up, and if there's two or three lanes of traffic, you just watch, and you see, and you figure out where the gap is. And as they start to come, with one passes, you start walking. And the other ones that are coming will adjust their speed and their direction to go around you. Whatever you do, do not stop. 
And you're like, are you kidding me? So I remember when we got there, and sure enough, right out of the airport, we're walking like this, and man, cars, cars, I mean, you're walking right across three or four lanes, and they just go around you. The tricky part is once you get to the middle line, you got to start looking the other way while you're looking behind you, and they start adjusting. It was crazy. So we had been there five or six days. Things had gone really well. Um, I'm asking, you know, we, we were crossing a crazy area, and, and I'm asking Islam, one of our friends that lives there, and I'm like, Islam, do, do people get hit by cars very often? He's like, oh, yeah, all the time. I'm like, this is not good. We had gone out. It's a very late-night culture. They don't eat dinner until like 10, 30, 11 o'clock a lot of times. They're up until early in the morning. It's just a late-night culture because it's so hot during the day. And so we had uh, gone to go grab a, a bag of shawarmas, and we were walking down to a park um, down by uh, in a lower area of the city. And as so we walked down through there, the, the major um, highway that runs through that area, we had to cross it. It was 10 lanes of traffic, five going this way and five going the opposite direction. And as we get down there, we kind of paired those six of us, and, and they kind of paired up. And, um, you know, uh, the Islam, our local guy, he said, I'm going to go. And the least experienced guy, you're going to walk right beside me. Um, don't go in a group because it's easier to dodge you when there's less of you. I'm like, oh, all right, good deal. So we're walking, we're walking. And I was going to walk with the other guy that lived there that had been living there for a couple of years. And I turn around, and he's already gone. And I'm like, my guy has left me. And so I'm standing there now in this uh, the, the abyss of traffic that is coming, and it's not coming at a slow rate of speed. Um, the vehicle was going between 55 and 65 miles an hour as they were flying by. And so I watched them all get to the middle. They kind of stop, and then they, they walk across to the other side, and I start as they start walking. And, and I remember you just find that little gap, and I just start walking like this, same pace. You just slow down a little bit, go up a little bit. You don't stop. No matter what, don't stop. And I remember just, just do, 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 and cars just going right around me. They would just take and go right around me. It was nerve-wracking at night because, you know, all you saw was headlights that were blinding you. And I remember walking across, and I got to the middle, to the median, and I was like, all right, I got a break, survive so far. And so they're all on the other side saying, hey, come on, you got this, we got this, we all made it, woohoo, you know, and I'm like, all right, here we go. So I start going as I start going across, you know, cars going in front, going behind, going in front, going behind, flying by. Get down to three lanes, two lanes, last lane, and I get to the shoulder of the road, and I'm like, whoo, I made it through all 10 lanes of traffic. Everybody's on the sidewalk, they're kind of like celebrating, woohoo, you made it. And I'm like, it's a big accomplishment for it. And I'm like, hey. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see movement. I turn in the darkness, and I see a donkey pulling a cart full speed ahead down the shoulder of the road about 10 yards from me, barreling and closing down to about zero yards like that. And in the blink of an eye, I'm telling you, the donkey's eyes were about the size of a pizza, looking at me, and it started to scrape and backpedal as the man with a cart full of stuff is holding on to the back, trying to keep from falling forward, yanking the ropes and the stirrups sideways. And I'm standing there like a, 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 a donkey in the headlights because he didn't have his headlights on. And I'm like, what in the world is about to happen? I hear its hoofs scraping. I see its long nose looking at me and its eyeballs. And as it's scraping to a halt right over here, the halt was going from about 20 miles an hour, which I didn't realize donkeys could run that fast, but they are fast, especially pulling a cart that weighs a couple thousand pounds behind them. And all of a sudden, that thing gets right here. I'm looking at nose to nose, I promise you. That donkey's life flashed before his eyes. Because I was going to go down, but it wasn't going to be without a fight. Because I was already bracing, man. It's about to get ugly right here. And all of a sudden, as that donkey's nose got to me, Islam, our, our friend from that area, grew up there. I felt him grabbing me by the arm because he had seen it coming. He had run out grabbing me by the arm and yanking me out of the way. As that donkey passed me, I saw it turning his head at me and looking at me. And I know that, that there's a scripture in Balaam where Balaam's donkey spoke to Balaam and talked to him. And I, I promise you, I think I heard that donkey look at me as it went by and said, you stupid American. And it kept on going. <laughs> but I can promise it was a terrorizing time. The, the, the knowledge says this, do as the locals do, but wisdom will tell you, do not stop until you get to the sidewalk or you'll get run over by a donkey. I'm thinking... I have just made it. I mean, it's a split second. I've just made it through 
10 lanes of traffic flying up and down the road, and I'm going to get run over and killed by a donkey pulling a cart. (sighs) The things that you learn in life. Knowledge is the knowing how to. Wisdom is knowing when to. Knowledge tells you, you may be right in the argument with your spouse, but wisdom tells you, you better stop talking. It ain't worth arguing. Tim said on Facebook, which I appreciate very much, knowledge said hire Dustin. Wisdom said he needs to shave his back. (laughs) You jerk. Slumping down the seat back there hiding. I hear you. And knowledge says I'm on the platform. I can say about anything I want to. (laughs) Tell you about Tim. Uh, Wisdom says he can fire me. Let me just move on. We'll just kind of keep rolling from there. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom. It's a collection of that practical skill of how we can live well in this world, dealing with all kind of life situations. Uh, Proverbs is a a great collection of these things. It's not promises or formulas, though. you got to remember this. Proverbs is not promises or formulas, but rather they're probabilities and godly recommendations. All right? They're probabilities and godly recommendations. When you live your life like this, the way that it lays out, these are the ways that, that God is in control, no matter what, good or bad. And Ecclesiastes will get into some of that. But that, you know, he's in control. And the, the Proverbs are not a formula, but they're rather godly recommendations. Some of my favorite Proverbs are, are these. Uh, Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. My son, do not forget your, my teaching, but... Um, keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. 323, above all else, guard your heart, for it is a wellspring of life. Proverbs 10:4, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. And it's not just talking about financial wealth, it's the spiritual wealth. It brings wealth to your life if you're diligent in the way that you live. One of the ones that was used on me um, when I was younger and that I have come to adore as well. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Yeah, it says that in there. Yep. So he who hates correction is stupid. Um, uh, Proverbs 15.22, plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. 16.32, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. It's filled with different, uh, different wisdom. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold? Choose understanding rather than silver. There's so much wisdom in Proverbs. I know so many people that read through Proverbs, um, whatever day of the month it is, that's the proverb that they read. Whatever chapter, whatever the day is, they read that proverb. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. Most of the months have 31 days. Uh, the, last, the last couple of days, if you're on a short month, just read the last couple of chapters. So it works out. You can gain a lot of great wisdom through it. It's a great uh, practice in your, in your walk with him as well. There's, uh, there's one in there that's in there twice, so it must be pretty important. Uh, Proverbs 21, 9 and, and 25, 24. Better to live on the corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Fellas, I do not recommend amening that one. So from there, uh, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not turn from it. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. In Proverbs 27, 17, as, as, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. One sharpens the other. There's so much richness and so full in, of, of wisdom in Proverbs. I encourage you, take some time to read through Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs will lift you up and it will encourage you. Then you get to Ecclesiastes, and it will throw you down and beat you to a pulp. Life is meaningless. Great. Awesome. That's wonderful. Solomon, who wrote a lot of Proverbs, gets to this point in his life where he kind of had strayed away from God and did everything under the sun, which means everything apart from him. He went through a lot of turmoil in his life, and he, he, he experienced a lot of good things, but he experienced a lot of bad things apart from God when he decided to do things on his own. And he wrote about that in Ecclesiastes. He says, everything under the sun is meaningless. The word meaningless literally is without specific form or concrete meaning. It's like a vapor or a smoke that is here and then vanishes quickly. You can't grasp a hold of it. That word meaningless is, is more than just there is no meaning to it. It's so much more than that. The book will definitely keep you grounded. 
The basic theme of Ecclesiastes is that life is unpredictable and unstable. It's unpredictable and unstable, but why do we spend so much time trying to create stability and predictability? Why do we spend so much time doing that? It doesn't mean to live foolishly and haphazardly, but the way that you live your life, giving him the ability to be in control no matter what circumstance or situation you face, is living a wise life. Ecclesiastes kind of lays it out. How do you live in a world filled with meaninglessness? How do you live in a world filled with meaninglessness? Because there is all kind of meaningless things in this world that we could pursue and chase after. And you don't have to even chase after them because they'll try to grab a hold of you and pull you in there with them. It's not hard to fall away. It's not hard to walk away. There's a time and a season for everything. It lays out in Ecclesiastes 3. In verse 4, in chapter 4, uh, it, it lays out 9, 9 through 12. It's kind of we don't do life in rows. We do life in circles, and it's lived best that way. kind of lays that out here. Two are better than one, it says, because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though you may be overpowered, one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. That cord of three strands is where you can do life with others who can help you to grow in your relationship with Christ and help you to walk in your relationship with him. As a couple in a marriage, that one being the husband, two being the wife, that third strand in that marriage needs to be Christ in the way that God can intertwine your lives together to be strong where it is not easily broken. In families and in our small groups, we have tons of small groups that we're kicking off and we're, we're ramping up and we're launching some new ones even. It'll be starting up in a couple of weeks. Sign up, start next week. You can go by the Connect Center next week and get information about all the new small groups that we're launching, the times, the places, life situations, whether it be a legacy person from our SALT ministry that, that Steve Joyner does a phenomenal job of leading to you, know, you could be engaged or, or newly married. We've got a group we're launching for engaged couples and newly, newlyweds. From there, you can be a, a parents of small children and do life with other parents of small children. You can have teenage kids and do life with teenage parent with kids who have teenage uh, kids. You can be single. You can be a man. You can be a woman. You know, and we have men and women's groups. We have all those different things to offer. But the biggest thing is this: do life together, because being connected gives you the ability to be stronger together as that group as you walk you, yourself uh, with the Lord, as you are there for each other as well. Ecclesiastes, the main point is, is this. The conclusion is found at the end of Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14. It says this, Fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of humans. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Lays it out to do this, to live your life for him. That's it, period. To live your life for him, that is what we are here to do. Worship is a gift to God. God doesn't need anything from you at all, but he wants worship from you, the way that you can live your life for him. So you're reading through and you see Proverbs, and you're like, man, this has got some good stuff. You get to Ecclesiastes, and you're looking, you're reading, and you're like, man, I'm getting beat down pretty hard and pretty heavy. And then all of a sudden, you get to Song of Solomon. And you start reading through there, and you're like, whoa, hang on now. Uh, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is more delightful than wine, your fragrance and your perfumes, and let the king take me to his chain. Wait a second. You start looking through and you're like, this might take a romance novel and throw it in the middle of this Bible right here. Like, what in the world is going on? It is an intense love story that is given to us. Um, it's a, a young man and a young woman's intense desire to seek and to find each other. And one thing is for sure, that love is a gift from God. Love is an absolute gift from God. In the book, you'll see that there's a power and intensity of love that is a gift from him. Done biblically and scripturally the way that God designed love the way that God designed marriage, the way that God designed sex, it is a gift from God. Do it on your own, away from him and apart from him, and it will destroy you, it will destroy multiple lives, and it can take away from what he created you to be as his design. However, 
done in the way that God laid it out, in a way that he scripturally says, this is how I've designed love, this is how I've designed marriage, this is how I've designed sex. And guys, I'm going to tell you what, as a married couple, wow. Can I get a wow smacker? Smacker's always wowing back here. So here's the deal. Ecclesiastes, man, it'll, it'll beat you up and throw you down, and then all of a sudden you get to Song of Solomon and it starts picking you up. I'm going to tell you this. We're not going to get into a whole lot of it, but there are some phenomenal resources on Right Now Media as far as Song of Solomon is concerned. If you get into it, you'll be able to see um, just a a series that Tommy Nelson did um, on Right Now Media. Um, If you're one of our our attenders here, we've given you guys a free gift of Right Now Media. Um, It is a, a tremendous tool for uh, Bible studies and for personal growth. Uh, Some people say it's kind of like Netflix, uh, Christian Netflix. It's so much better than that. It's so much more than that. And so if you've not gotten an account set up through Right Now Media, it's totally free. You can send an email to us and we'll get you set up. Info at the cross and uh, we'll get you set up. Crossloganville.org. We'll get you set up. You can grab a card on your way out. Send us an email and we'll get you set up. It's a free account. All you got to do is click and register. That's it. They don't take and sell any of your information or anything like that. It's just a great resource and a great tool. But Tommy Nelson does a phenomenal study on the Song of Solomon in that book there. But this book is a reminder of the power and the intensity of love, and it's a gift from God. That's what it is. It's, it's a, a beautiful gift from God. There's a lot of good things in there. Um, and, and, and as you read through it, it's, it's not for the faint of heart or your ultra-conservative grandmother who thinks that raising cakes are just a good dessert. And if you've ever studied through Song of Solomon, you'll know that there is a meaning for raising cakes that are not meant for a good dessert. So just going to lay that out there. From there, um, I don't know that I recommend it for, for many preteen kids as well. Um, it's one of those things that you may be opening doors and get into some questions uh, pretty early on. Um, Jewish families, uh, there's an age that the Jewish uh, kids have to get to before they even um, crack that book open. Uh, but there's a lot of great things as you read through it and as you see it. There's many elaborate metaphors that are found throughout this book, which are not to be taken literally or visually, but rather symbolically. And if you take it literally or visually, you will get yourself in some good trouble. I'll give you a couple of examples. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to the chariots of Pharaoh. Hey, baby, you look like a horse. (laughs) Your hair is like a flock of goats. Men, next time your wife comes in to ask if her hair looks okay, you try that one out. Tell her it looks like a flock of goats and let me know how it works out for you. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming out of the water. Each has its twin. Not one of them is along. She had all of her teeth, which tells you she was not an Alabama or an Auburn fan. I got death threats after that one in the first service. I got death threats, okay? We are going to be moving churches. We are going to be sending you hate mail. Remember, hate mail, my hate mail address is Pastor Tim at thecrossloganville.org, okay? That's where my hate mail goes to, Pastor Tim at thecrossloganville.org, okay? All right, from there, if you like to dust it at thecross.org is a good place. All right, so, um, you know, there's some really good examples. The, the, here's another one. Um, your neck is like the Tower of David with a thousand shields hanging on it. Your double chin is so sweet, baby. I'm going to tell you, I like a big neck. So there are some things. Your two breasts, all right, it's not a marriage conference. We're going to stop right there. There are some things in Solomon Solomon that you can get to that you will read and you will blush, okay? Um, I have a friend who grew up in an ultra-conservative fundamental Baptist church, um, and he said that the pastor would, on Sunday nights, uh, he would preach the message according to what people had questions about. He said that he had written, I have a question about, you know, uh, this verse in Song of Solomon. He wrote out the verse, and uh, the pastor ended up pulling that one out by chance that night, opened it up and said, unfortunately, I can't read this handwriting. Threw it on the floor and just kept on going. But there's a a lot of things you may hear in a ultra-conservative fundamental Baptist church. Solomon may not be one of them that you'll be uh, taught out of a whole lot. He said he didn't, uh, it didn't even know that that, uh, that book was in the Bible until he started a Bible study with some of us in college. So everything under the sun. 
He knows, you know, Solomon knows what he's talking about with a lot of stuff. He's tried everything. He's done everything. He had uh, uh, 800 wives or 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was a, a tired, poor man, I believe. Some of you guys will get that a little bit later today. But he knew, must have known a thing or two about women as he kind of wrote out and, and laid some of this stuff out. It's, a, uh, it's, it's, definitely a, um, it's definitely one of those things that you can look at and you can read through, and all of a sudden um, your eyes kind of blink open, and you're like, what in the world is going on here? And it's, it's just like anything else in Scripture. When you read through things and when you go through the Scripture, it is so, so helpful to have people that you can walk through the Scripture with. That's why small groups are so important. That's why it's so important to have people that can walk with you and have accountability with you, that can pour into you and mentor you and disciple you. Because as you walk through these things, you're going to have questions. And it's so valuable to be in a small group of people that you can openly talk about some of these questions about. And you can do life together. That's what's great. When you have the ability to do it, you're able to see that. These books are an invitation to follow God's way in any situation, even when almost everything inside of you screams to do it your own way. The Scripture is a, a great resource to teach us in every situation how we can live our lives for Him. Everything under the sun, Solomon did everything under the sun apart from God, and it was meaningless. Over time, Solomon forgot his own counsel and the wisdom of Scripture. God had given him clear instructions for anyone that was going to become a king. Don't, to, don't amass a, a load of horses. I'll explain that in just a second. Don't be multiplying of the wives. And don't accumulate a lot of silver and gold. The reason why you wouldn't amass a lot of horses is because that was a symbol of power, a symbol of the uh, ability and the power that you have as a kingdom to go off to war against others. And when kings would do this, it would take away from their dependence on God. They were designed to prevent a king and trust in the military might rather than trusting in God. To follow after foreign gods because a lot of the wives that Solomon took led him away from following after the Lord God. He began to even sacrifice to these other idols, false gods and idols, and relying on wealth instead of God. Solomon followed after his own ways later on in his life. And taking many wives was a direct violation of God's word. Amassing all the wealth and all the horses was a direct violation of God's word. And as God predicted, Solomon grew old and his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to God any longer. One key thing we can learn from Solomon is this. It's not how you start, but how you finish that matters. There's some great things we can learn from looking at his life. Are you living a wise life or following after foolish ways? Where are you at in your journey? Emptiness is covered by distraction. Darkness is overpowered by artificial light. Where are you at in your journey? Loneliness is numbed with social ability. Futility is denied by activity. And woundedness is defeated by brokenness. Where are you at in your journey? Do you have all these things that are filling this void in your life that God designed for him and him alone to fill? God loves you. God delights in you. And God will do whatever it takes to bring you into life-changing communion with his son. He will allow you to go through the greatest of great times. And he will allow you to go through the pits of the pits to bring you through the despair that will bring you to who he is. God desires to have communion with you. He desires to have relationship. So many claim to follow God, yet their devotion is poured out on so many other things in their life. You can see it. Um, we uh, experience that in our lives where we claim to be following him, but yet our devotion shows something so different. Knowledge tells you that living in America, we are very blessed with all the stuff. But wisdom tells us this. Many of us have allowed these blessings to become curses. Follow me on this for just a second. Many of the blessings that we have and that we claim as Americans have become curses in our lives. Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? What are you dependent on? Are you dependent on the things that you have, on the accumulation of these things? 
Or are you dependent on God and God alone? I remember on one trip to Uganda a few years back, uh, we were gone out to a village that was a good uh, ways outside of, of Jinjai. And as we got to this village, um, we met this lady, the community, to come and ask for some help in repairing her hut, her mud hut. And we dug a hole and began to mix up the mud and began to put the mud in the cracks on the sticks and to be able to repair this mud hut. After we worked for a couple of hours, we went inside. We were invited inside of the hut, and it's just one room. Um, the lady literally lived in a mud hut with a dirt floor on a mat, and that was it. She had nothing. She had no furniture. She had no food. She had no water. She had nothing in there. It was just her, the mat, and the hut, and that was it. And I remember seeing and meeting this lady and seeing the joy of the Lord in this lady's life. She had nothing, but she had everything. She was the most joyous and one of the happiest people I've ever met in my life. The community took care of her. Her church took care of her. They brought her food. They brought her water. They took care of her. She could barely walk outside of her hut. They took care of her. She had been a widow for years, and they have been taking care of her for years. And I'll never forget the smile on that beautiful woman's face as she would just smile and grin as she talked about Jesus. She had nothing, but she had everything. As we were leaving, the group got together, and I walked up, and they were all talking about wanting to leave a bunch of money for her and wanting to leave some, some, all the food they had and the water for her, and they wanted to go and get her some furniture, and they wanted to do all these things. And, and, and I just stopped them. I said, guys, hang on. We're not going to leave anything. Everything we came with, we're leaving with. We're leaving with more than what we came with because of what you've witnessed right here with her. She doesn't need anything, and she doesn't want anything. If you leave these things, you're thinking that it is a blessing for her, but you're robbing the community of being the hands and the feet of Jesus that he commanded them to be and that they are already fulfilling. She needs nothing. She wants nothing. We will leave Nothing with her. That was the greatest blessing we could do for that lady. She didn't need anything. She didn't want anything. She was completely dependent on God. He was her shield and her very great reward as it lays out in Deuteronomy. I am your shield and I am your very great reward. She had everything that she wanted, everything that she needed. That was it. The community was taking care of her. I remember seeing outside of a, a village called Lazil Valad in Haiti. We had been working there in, in the mountains um, so on the, the southern end of the island. If you've got Port-au-Prince here, Lazil Valad would be right here in the middle of the mountains. Um, several years ago, um, we took some, uh, uh, four of us had gone in. We were the first white people that this village had ever seen, that the kids in this village had ever seen. Some of the adults had seen a white person before. It was very remote. And I remember the children began to cry because they thought there was something wrong with us, that we were sick because we had no pigment in our skin. And I remember the, the, the elders sitting them down and telling them and talking to them. But this village, they had very, very little, um, very little clothing. You'd just see them in old, worn-out clothes, torn to pieces. You'd see these things. And, and I remember we had spent a week doing life with them. And, and it was a Sunday morning um, up in the mountains. And the, the church is up on this hillside. And we would walk up. I remember going up early in the morning and just sitting there praying and watching the sun come up. And I remember just sitting there and watching. And you would see just these, these families in this bright white shirt just coming in these beautiful white dresses You'd see them from miles away bopping through the hills. You'd see them from miles away. They would go below this ridge, and you wouldn't see them for a while. Then you'd see them over here for a minute, and you'd see them over here on this trail. And I remember just seeing family after family coming from miles and miles away up to this church to worship in these beautiful, beautiful clothes that were pearly white. And I remember watching them come in and just seeing they had nothing but everything they had belonged to him in their worship. And I remember, man, the worship that morning. I remember the worship that morning just being so genuine and real 
because they were giving God everything they had because he had saved them from everything they had been. And it was so genuine and so real. I remember just hearing the worship pour out. You can just see it over and over. We as Americans have allowed some of the blessings to turn into curses. And so I challenge you in your life and in your walk, don't allow that to happen. Keep it in perspective. There is no shortcut to a deep encounter with Christ. There is no shortcut to a deep encounter with Christ. You've got to dig. You've got to work. You've got to live it. There are many lessons we can learn from the life of Solomon. If you've got your, uh, your, your announcements on the back, it's got some fill in the blank. I'm going to kind of walk through these. Just some lessons of wisdom if you want to write those down. Seek God with all your heart. He will be found. Seek God with all your heart and he will be found. Don't give him the leftovers. God doesn't desire the leftovers. He desires the whole meal. Give him your best. The second one is this. Those who honor God will be honored by him. That doesn't mean that you're going to have this blessed life of, of, of all these financial blessings and all this great health and all these things and never go through heartache, never go through turmoil. No, it means this, that no matter what you do, when you honor God, you will be honored by him. When you walk through the great times, he is honored. When you walk through the pits of the pits, he is honored because he'll be right there with you walking through it no matter what you go through. God will equip us. All right, the third one, God will equip us to accomplish the task he calls us to if we rely on him. God will equip us to accomplish the task he calls us to if we rely on him. In a lot of the mission training, I, I would share with the teams that he doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. That's what God does. He equips all of us to do what he's called us to do. The fourth and the spiritual life is a marathon, not a sprint. A good start does not always mean that you'll finish well. It's a marathon, not a sprint. That's what it is. It doesn't mean that you're going to finish well just because you had a good start. Fifth one, we can sincerely ask God to incline our hearts towards him. But if we wander away from the path of righteousness, if we wander off that path, and we choose to violate his word, man, you'll pay for it. You'll see it. You'll experience it. That heart that's towards him, man. But when you wander off the path of righteousness, man, that happens when we choose to violate his word. You've experienced it in your life. You've experienced it when you've been walking with him. If you've got a relationship with Christ, when you've been walking with him, you know what it means to have that life that's righteous for him. Righteousness is being rightly related to God, and you know what it's like. But when you take your hands off, Man. The sixth one, the closest to us will affect our spiritual lives. We must be very careful the company that we keep. Keep that in mind. The closest to us will affect our spiritual lives. We must be very careful the company that we keep. It's been said that people will know you by your friends. You want to know who you are? Your friends can tell them. That's it. They know you by who you are. Doesn't mean to not hang out with those who are who are, are, are in need of a relationship with Christ, but you've got to be strong enough in your own relationship to lead them the right way. Are you leading them or are they leading you? The last one. Life lived apart from God will be meaningless regardless of education, fulfilled goals, greatest of pleasures, and the greatest abundance of wealth. A life with him, man, that's awesome. A life apart from God will be meaningless where are you at in your journey? Are you living a fulfilled life or a foolish life? Wisdom road that we can learn. As you go down the road of wisdom, you can learn some things from what Solomon went through. The wisdom of repentance. Identify and repent of the sin that's demanding satisfaction in your life. Looking for it from a source that you can control. Surrender it. Crucify the flesh. Give God the opportunity to live in your life, to have communion with you. Wisdom of worship, relate authentically with God. Hurt, celebrate, lament, praise, weep, and laugh. Be all that God created you to be without pretense. The wisdom of discernment, ask God to show you both the broad and the narrow road as well as what it will cost if you go on either path. Yield to his spirit and allow him to lead you, to 
to lead your life and give you a desire to follow him down the narrow road that leads to life. Follow after him. Take one step at a time. The wisdom of emptiness. Face the futility of life. Feel it sink into its depths and then seize the opportunity in your emptiness to provide the opportunity of hope that is found only in Christ. Give God the opportunity to work in your life. The last one is this, wisdom of communion. After the long cry of despair, the peak after the valley, the dawn after the long night, God offers you relationship, hand-in-hand, heart-to-heart relationship, from the valley of the shadow of death to the wings that rise up like the eagles. The heart-to-heart relationship, communion, he will be with you. God desires to have communion with you, and it will crush every hope and satisfaction that you will have apart from him. God desires communion with you. He desires relationship with you. Will you live a foolish life or will you live one filled with wisdom? Wisdom of your own or wisdom of him? He desires to have communion with you. In your hurt, in your despair, he will be your companion. In your suffering, he will be your comforter. In darkness of this world that surrounds you, he will be your light. In your uncertainty, he will be your confidence. In your failures, he will be your success. In the imprisonment, he will set the captives free. In your rejection, he will be the elector. In the bitterness that life can deal you, he will be the sweetest taste of honey on your lips. God desires to have communion with you. In your carelessness, he will be your concern. In your bleakness, he will be your valor. In your coldness, he will be your warmth. In your guiltiness, he will be your debtor. In your woundedness, he will be the cure. In the brokenness, he will be the mender. In the weakness, he will be the strength. In the sickness, he will be the health. And in the death, he will be your life. God desires communion with you. Do you want to have a relationship with him and give him the communion, the relationship he desires to have with you? In the death, he will be your life. God desires it. The Bible is a love story about a betrayed lover that begins with a divorce begins with a divorce. Everything from the third chapter of Genesis to the end of Revelation is a story of that betrayed lover wooing us back to himself so that we can have relationship with him and experience life and love and family forever. That's what it is. Where are you at in your walk and in your journey? What is the wisdom that you follow after? Knowledge tells you there were some things in this message that could speak to you today. Wisdom wants to know What are you going to do with it? How will you apply it to your life? Live a life of wisdom.